0: Did you know somewhere around 95% of the world's population has never flown? That's a lot more have-nots than haves. Welcome to the lore of the South.
1: Follow the show on social media to keep up with what's going on and to see pics that go along with each episode. Search for Laura the South on TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook.
0: Welcome back to Laura the South with me, Kelly Cruz. How the heck are y'all doing? Y'all, this year can take a long walk off a short pier. Pretty sure that we've released an episode since I had surgery. But y'all, my, my brain still is not acting right. it's oxygen deprivation um it took me about three weeks to feel all right after the surgery and then all of a sudden all i could do was sleep and the freaking anemia was kicking my butt again and we had plans we went down my mom and i went down and visited my aunt my cousin hey aunt becky and stuff if y'all are listening um we all met up in a condo down in Sarasota. We had all sorts of plans. We are going to go visit the Ringling House, um, the Circus Museum, and I was going to have all kinds of info and stuff gathered from this trip to share with y'all on the podcast. But y'all, I spent three days moving from the bed to the couch. That's how exhausted I have felt. And then On the last day, I made myself go out to dinner with everybody. So, I'm glad I at least got to do that much (laughs) on our little trip. Um, We got back to town this past Thursday. And I had an appointment with the hematologist for another round of infusions um, for Friday after we got back. And they did an IV. They got the infusion going. That takes about a half hour or so. And then, the amazing nursing staff there looks at me, and they can tell I'm not feeling just right, and they ask what's going on, and I describe how weird I feel, and so they did a blood draw and checked my numbers to make sure I wasn't in the danger zone again, and sure enough, my hemoglobin was back down to a six, so they sent me to the hospital. I spent one night there getting two more units of B positive, positive. Y'all, y'all donate blood if you can. It's not just for like traumatic injuries, car accidents, that kind of stuff. It's also for weirdos like me who can't hold on to any of their iron and for other blood disorders. So, three days, well, actually, now let's see, it was three days when I started writing this. Now we're a week out and I feel so much better, guys. Like, it, it's amazing. It's like maybe I'm turning into a vampire. I got my two units of B-positive, and a couple of days later, I'm feeling much better. Oh, and I did get my second infusion yesterday, so I should be good for a little while. But yeah, thanks to the local hospital, the blood bank, and people who donate blood, because, y'all, I would be in even worse shape if it weren't for them. And also, y'all, be nice to nurses. Those are some darn hard-working people, and they deal with and see a lot. Y'all, I got a roommate halfway through my stay, and she and her daughter were so rude. They threatened to cuss out the nurses over a bed alarm. I mean, why? Because they're looking out for your best interest and trying to keep you from hurting yourself? So you're going to cuss somebody out for that? I mean, come on. But I digress. Y'all, everybody just be nice. What else? Let's see. Um, Hayden's home from Europe. Um, He said it was a trip of a lifetime, y'all. Did I share any pics from his trip? I don't remember. If y'all want to see some, let me know on social media. Um, The oldest and youngest are getting ready for back to school. The oldest, she's finishing up her AA. And our youngest just found out she got into her surgical tech program she applied for. And Hayden is still working with one of the bread guys that's buddies with Michael. So the cruise kids have got all their fall seasons lined up for them. I want to thank all of y'all, you listeners, and for especially the Patreon supporters, Sydney, Judy, and L, for hanging in there with us. We really do appreciate you, one and all. With that, let's see what I have dug up for our history-making news. Mm-hmm. This story comes from us from the Smithsonian Magazine. 3,000-year-old sippy cups were discovered in the graves of ancient German infants and toddlers. The cups were made from pottery and had drinking spouts on the side. Some of the little vessels were even formed into the shape of animals to entertain the babies and encourage them to drink from these special cups. Residue left in the old sippy cups were found to contain the fat proteins from cow, goat, and sheep's milk. These findings show that humans began feeding their children, especially babies, animal milk around 3,000 years earlier than we first thought. And also the evidence of the animal milk supplementation can be seen to coincide with a baby boom that also happened in this time period. Y'all know throughout time, Mamas have always tried to find ways to feed their offspring. And y'all look for pics on the social media and I'll post some of the pictures I found online of these early sippy cups. They're pretty stinking cute. Have y'all ever heard of haunted aircraft? And I don't mean like ghost planes, but like ghosts on planes. Um Well, I until I started looking for today's story like I really owe y'all a ghost story we haven't done a ghost story in a while but I wanted something that didn't take place inside of four walls a castle an old cabin something like that or even in a graveyard and I came across this story and it's a wild one some of the people or victims if you will in this story are still alive and can be seen in interviews about their nightmarish experience and documentaries that can be found on YouTube. There's one on more on the spooky side on Discovery Plus. I'll link both of them in the show notes. So y'all be prepared. In this episode, we have a mass casualty event, a plane crash, and some swamp critters. Welcome to episode 69. Nightmare in the Everglades, Flight 401. On the evening of December 29, 1972, Eastern Flight 401 took off from JFK Airport headed to Miami. There were 163 passengers on board, 10 flight attendants, 3 cockpit crew, for a total of 176 souls on board which included two off-duty airline employees who occupied jump seats. The aircraft was brand new. It had just been delivered to the airline back in August. It was a Lockheed Martin TriStar. I don't know if they were Martin yet. I think that part was just in my brain because what I wrote was just Lockheed TriStar. And it was top of the line. Many aircraft of today are based on this design. Cockpit crew were pretty excited about flying this bird with all of its new gadgets, and the passengers on the plane were looking forward to a New Year's Eve spent in the warm South Florida climate. The flight started off run-of-the-mill, everything status quo. They were cleared to lift off at 7.30 from JFK, though the flight wouldn't actually leave the ground until around 9.30. Flight 401 was captained by Robert Loft. His co pilot was Albert Stockstill, along with flight engineer Don Repo. Also in the cockpit was Angelo Don Diego, an off duty technical engineer who was returning home from an assignment in New York City. He was one of the guys occupying a jump seat. When the doors of the craft were closed, the flight attendants found there were 60 less passengers than what had originally booked the flight. There wasn't supposed to have been an empty seat on the plane. In fact, the only couple in first class was there because when they called the ticket counter to book the flight, those were the only two seats left on the plane. Those 60 individuals that had a change of travel plans that night would soon hear on the news how lucky those changes of plans had been. There were people from all walks of life on board. One couple was headed to Miami after their honeymoon. The couple in first class actually got engaged on the flight. There were college students, an art dealer with her pet poodle who was stowed under the seat, a merchandiser from a famous New York department store, and he was using this flight time to work on some reports and he was on his way to see his girlfriend another couple held a two-month-old baby on the way to meet her grandparents for the first time flight 401 was headed south and once out of the northeast the weather was nice and clear the pilot engaged the autopilot and they began what seemed to be at first an uneventful flight 401's flight plan would take it over Virginia and North Carolina, then 155 miles east of the Florida coast out over the Atlantic. The jet would then begin its landward approach and descent at about West Palm Beach. The passenger's view of the ground was described as a void of blackness to the east, which was the Atlantic, and a void of blackness to the west, which were the Everglades. And what lay between, shining like a beacon, was the city of Miami. Eastern Flight 401 began its approach into Miami at 11.32 p.m. It was from the jump seat behind the captain that Don Diego noticed they were coming in at a west approach. And it was about this time that he spotted a warning light blinking on one of the control panels. First the light, and then they heard the warning sound that accompanied it. The lights and the sounds were saying that there was a hydraulics issue in the nose gear and it was not lowering. Stockstill, who was landing the plane, called further attention to it. Then Loft, the captain, he told the crew that he was going to raise the gear and then lower them again. Kind of like the airline version of did you try unplugging it and plugging it back in? When that didn't work, they radioed ground. Let them know what was happening. Ground ordered the captain to take the aircraft back up to 2,000 feet and circle the airport and retry their approach. So the flight crew climbed back to the ordered cruising altitude of 2,000 feet, and the pilot ordered the autopilot to be re-engaged while they sorted the issue. On an odd note here, the craft that was just ahead of Flight 401, National Flight 607, was also experiencing problem with its nose gear. The crew completed one full circle around the airport and they still couldn't get the indicator light to light up. They were beginning to think it may have just been a blown bulb, but they radioed ground again to update them on the situation. Flight control then orders them to remain at 2,000 feet and this time go do a lap out over the Everglades to make a larger circle around the airport. Around this time, the passengers, especially the ones who flew a lot, along with the cabin crew, were starting to take note of what was going on. Why had they started the descent over Miami, and now they were climbing again? And why could they no longer see the city lights below them? Meanwhile, in the cockpit, they continued to try to get the indicator light to light up. Stock still finally manages to get the button pulled, though for some reason, he doesn't try to replace the bulb. He then proceeded to plug the button in sideways and jams it. Meanwhile, Loft orders Repo, the engineer, down into what was called the Hill Hole, a small area below the cockpit that had a small porthole window that um, they could use to view the landing gear. Meanwhile, the Miami ground control was all hands on deck for the flight that was coming in that was first to report the landing gear issue. They had fire and rescue waiting on the runway and kind of left 401 to its own devices, thinking their issue was only an indicator light and thought the issues from flight 607 were their main concern flight 607 landed without any issues, but flight 401 was somewhere over the Everglades and didn't know if it had a full set of gear down or not. Repo reappeared from the hellhole and reports that he couldn't get eyes on the landing gear. Walt then throws on a light switch and sends Repo back down to try again. With Flight 607 safely on the ground, the flight controller turns back to his screen and sees that 401 has lost about 1,100 feet in altitude. He radios the flight, informing them of this, and then instructs them to head back to Miami and gave them the runway they were authorized to land on. Once off the radio, Stockstill turns to Loft, informing him that there was something up with the altitude. Both he and Loft had been so distracted by the blown light bulb, they had failed to watch the altimeter, depending solely on the autopilot to keep them aloft. The crew and the passengers in the cabin once again had began to notice a descent. But why was it over nothing but blackness? Where were the runway lights of the airport? Flight 401 impacts the marshland of the Everglades at 227 miles per hour. Where the crash occurs, the grassy marsh is only about 8 feet above sea level. The sawgrass grows to over 10 feet in places, and the ground in the most solid of locations was thick mud at best. The left wing hit first, then the landing gear, then the body of the plane, It cut a huge gouge through the tall sawgrass, traveling a third of a mile, all the while breaking apart and scattering both plane pieces and people in its wake. The fuselage broke into five large chunks, but not before the plane did a 180 in the mud. That's probably what slowed and stopped its forward momentum. Inside the passenger cabin, they had zero time to react. One second, it felt like a normal descent. One passenger even described the initial impact feeling almost like a normal landing. Then the plane made an aggressive bounce, and the people in the cabin knew something was very wrong. The plane and the people inside then began to be rocked about like they were on the worst roller coaster ever. A husband threw his arm around his wife trying to protect her. They felt the nose of the plane make a sharp turn to the right. Then an explosion erupted from the front of the plane. An enormous fireball rushed down the aisles, seeming to cling to the ceiling and grazing the tops of the seats. Then they were hit with a blast of cold air and a wave of what they feared to be jet fuel. Lights were flashing. Different components on the plane were broken loose on impact, and they became airborne. Another passenger who had been chatting to his neighbor was thrown backwards into his seat. He said it felt like they were suddenly inside of a cardboard box that was being shaken by a giant. When the shaking stopped, he looked around at the destruction. There was water and oil drenching what was left of the aircraft around him. His seatmate was now on the ceiling. The single man in first class had just dozed and was awoken to a violent jolt. He felt like he was suffocating. He was surrounded by ungodly sounds of metallic and grinding and screeching. He wrestled his way out of his suit jacket about the same time that the noise ceased. Once free, he found himself still belted to his chair in waist-deep water, He had awoken to a real-life nightmare. The couple with a baby. At impact, the baby flew from her mother's arms. Once the craft came to a stop, the couple began a frantic search for their infant. After around 20 minutes or so, they found her practically unharmed about 40 feet away in what seemed to be a nest of grass and aircraft wiring. The causes of death would be varied. blunt force trauma, burns, drownings, broken necks from the impact, probably too many ways to name. The lady traveling with her pet poodle, she was found 50 feet from the craft, still strapped to her seat, and dead from her many injuries. But her poodle did make it, y'all, so at least the dog lived. Other survivors described the aftermath like this, where Fly 401 had broken into five larger sections and huddled near each piece of the craft, gathered the survivors like little islands of humanity clinging to life. Bud and Ray, they sped towards the disaster site. It took them about 15 minutes to reach the survivors. They would turn the fan off every so many yards to listen out to see if they could hear any cries of the survivors and he turns the boat towards the screams when he and Ray paused again it sounded as if the screams were coming from behind them they finally found where the plane had cut a path through the tall grass and followed it to the main wreck site Bud describes the scene
1: when I first started working my way into the wreckage I began seeing people some of them laying in the water some of them wandering around walking but very slowly. I got as close as I could without running over anybody, and then I got out. There were dead people everywhere, and everywhere I looked were half-naked people, some completely naked. I felt so helpless. The first one I came to looked like a man, like he was about to drown. Looked like both of his legs were broken, and he couldn't move. The only thing he could move was his head, and it kept falling into the water. He said, help me. I can't hold my head up much longer. So I pulled him up and rested his back and propped his head up out of the water. There were a lot of people in turned over seats, their heads in the water. I tried to help the ones that possibly were drowning.
0: What Bud doesn't mention here is how when he jumped off of his airboat, he was instantly covered in jet fuel, and that was giving him some pretty serious chemical burns. But he persisted with no thought to his own safety and continued to try to save as many lives as he could. Still trapped in the wreckage was 25 year old Beverly Raposa. She frees herself from her jump seat and the shoulder harness restraint. She frees another flight attendant, who appears to be in shock, not believing the destruction she was seeing around her. Beverly tried to gather as many of the survivors as she could, but found it impossible to move around in the swamp and the wreckage without further injuring herself. Another passenger came to, slightly submerged, and thought they had landed in the ocean, but quickly realized that this wasn't the ocean, and he had to get out of that seat. He freed himself and then two flight attendants who were trapped in their seats on what had once been the floor but was now the ceiling. Back at ground control, the second that it was noticed that Flight 401 had fallen off of the radar, the nearby Coast Guard station was called, and they were in the air by 1145 and on the search for survivors. At the crash site, Bud sees the helicopter in the distance. It was searching the wrong area. He quickly took off his headlamp and began waving it around, trying to get the chopper's attention. It worked, and the helicopter quickly flew to the scene. What the pilot saw below was something from a horror movie. Everywhere there was bodies, wreckage, and just a handful of little islands of survivors waving from the tall grass. When the next helicopter arrived, They were having a hard time finding a place to land. It was a struggle from what the lieutenant said. There were bodies everywhere and no place to land where we wouldn't have been on top of them. At 1246 a.m., the rescue really begins in earnest. The Coast Guard, Florida Highway Patrol, Miami-Dade Police, along with all the other first responders, set up headquarters along a levee. Um, And the levee was about 100 yards from the crash site. That was as close as they could safely get to where the injured people were. Bud began acting as a shuttle. He ferried the rescuers to the crash site and the victims back to the levee, where the rescue vehicles waited. Captain Loft was found alive in the cockpit but he told rescuers he was going to die, and he did before he could be freed. By the next afternoon at 1230 on December 30th, the mission turned from rescue to recovery, and the first of the passengers' bodies were pulled from the Everglades' muddy water. The local hospitals were thrown into organized chaos with so many terribly injured crash victims. There seemed to be a theme amongst many of them, They had suffered major gaping wounds in the crash, but the mud they were all in probably packed the wounds and kept the passengers from bleeding out. The swamp mud was both a blessing and a curse. It kept some of the survivors long enough to be rescued and receive medical attention to only days later turn into gas gangrene. They had one almost surefire treatment for this and that was to place the patient into a barometric chamber. The top used to help divers who try to surface too fast. They used to call it the bends. Now I think it's like nitrous poisoning or something. You get air bubbles in your um, brain and veins and stuff, basically. and um, can cause a uh, embolism. The few that were located in Florida were soon filled, and this meant those who couldn't find a spot in a chamber faced amputation of the affected limb and several of the survivors did lose arms and legs. Now, what caused this advanced aircraft to crash in the first place? A long and thorough investigation was carried out. The flight recorders were listened to and analyzed over and over. The investigators ran a series of simulations, to try and solve this mystery. But between the data they recovered from the wreckage itself and the testimony of the sole witness who saw what happened firsthand in the cockpit on that late-night flight, it was the off-duty Eastern Airlines employee, Don Diego, who had occupied the jump seat behind the captain. It was first found that during the captain Loft's autopsy that he had a brain tumor... That was putting pressure on the optic nerve, and it might have been affecting his peripheral vision. Though, the doctor couldn't be sure if it would have had any effects on loss ability to pilot the aircraft. Then it was shown that the autopilot had been engaged. But all it takes for the autopilot to become disengaged is for someone to bump the steering wheel which they did this purposefully in the design of the craft. Um, if an emergency occurred, the pilot needed to be able to take control of the plane immediately and not be fumbling with switches. So just by the gentlest of touch on the of the steering wheel, it would disengage the autopilot. And it then it was also found that the landing gear light was just burned out. The nose gear had been fully functional. The whole thing was just a tragedy of human errors. They were so wrapped up in the nose gear warning light that the whole crew was distracted. They dropped 2,000 feet without noticing until it was too late, and just under 100 lives were lost. So now, how about for the spooky bits? So when Flight 401 hit the mud at over 200 miles per hour, the mud cushioned the craft and many of the components of the aircraft were recovered and used in other planes. Bob Loft was spotted in his captain's uniform sitting amongst passengers one time. and Eastern exec even once claimed to have had a full conversation with Loft. The executive got up from his seat for a moment thinking about his conversation and the man he was having it with, he finally realized he had recognized the man in the pilot's uniform. It was Bob Loth, who had died on Flight 401. On a flight from New York City to Miami, the same flight path that 401 had earlier taken, another flight attendant got a scare of a lifetime when she opened an overhead compartment and Bob Loft was up there peering down at her. Another story goes that on yet another flight, the flight attendant was preparing for food service and was standing by the oven when she noticed a reflection in the oven door. She turned around, but there was no one behind her. She called to her fellow crew to come and pay witness to what she had seen but the face was gone when she described the man she was told that it sounded like she was describing Don Repo Don was also spotted making repairs to an oven on another flight when the flight attendant asked the current flight engineer about it the flight engineer said the oven was working and didn't need any repairs Don seems to be a helpful guy or ghost On yet another flight, Don was spotted sitting in the cockpit. This time he spoke up and warned of an electrical problem. It so unnerved the pilot that he canceled the flight. And y'all know what? A faulty circuit board was later found and switched out. For a while, Don was seen quite often in different cockpits carrying out his pre-flight checks. Still at work even after death. Eastern became very conscious of these goings-ons, and everyone was threatened with instant dismissal if they ever spoke of being on a haunted aircraft. Also, any logbooks that mentioned something that vaguely sounded paranormal disappeared. Eventually, all of the salvage pieces from Flight 401 were replaced, and the sightings and hauntings of Bob and Don went away with the pieces of their last flight. Side note, one thing I didn't include in the main body of this episode was how the flight attendants worked to keep their passengers calm. They sang Christmas carols and they tried to keep the little groups of survivors safe in the dangerous swamp. They said at one point, while they were waiting for their rescuers, they could start hearing the Everglades coming back to life. You know, the initial crash scared off the gators and the snakes and all the other different critters that live in the swampland. Well, once it quieted back down again, they started returning to their own territory. So that was something else that these survivors faced. This crash also completely changed how flight crews were trained. The cockpit went from being run like the military, obey your captain, don't question orders type of deal, to encouraging the crew to question and have conversations on what is happening during the flight. Also for everybody to kind of concentrate on their own jobs. And if there's an issue, then you bring it up. Or if you question something that someone else is doing or is happening, then you're able to speak up and you don't all have the anxiety of what is the captain going to do to us or say if we misspeak. They didn't have to have that fear anymore. And all of this was done in hopes that this sort of horrible accident wouldn't happen again. Also, y'all, I'd love to hear what you think about the hauntings of Flight 401. If y'all have any comments about this, y'all make sure to do so when I post the pictures on social media. I'd like to hear what y'all's opinions on on ghost captains on airplanes. Do you think that moving some of those components from the crash flight could have induced hauntings on other airplanes? I don't know. Now, where are we on our oldest building by state? And as usual, it is brought to us by the Discoverer blog. Let's see, we have Montana and Fort Kona. It was built by Angus McDonald in 1847. He was a Scotsman who was employed by the Hudson Bay Company. And then next, we have Nebraska with Bellevue's Log Cabin. And y'all will understand why this place had a fancy name once I tell you who it was built by. It was built between 1830 and 1835 by Jacob Astor and his fur trading company. And as y'all may know, the Astors were the richest family in the U.S. for a long time. And again, y'all, thank y'all so much in there for hanging in there with us and waiting for this next episode to come out. This was a long one, so I hope it makes up for that long wait. Did you really like what you heard? Consider checking out our Patreon for 3 bucks a month. You get two or three extra episodes, and they're commercial-free because every once in a while, we're lucky enough to pick up a commercial here and there. Um, Look for us on social media. Facebook, Instagram, Producer Mike puts together a TikTok every now and then. And you can also listen to the podcast on YouTube. All are underneath um, Laura of the South if you just search for us. Um, if you'd like to get in touch, have a show idea, or want to order a t-shirt, they're 30 bucks. That includes shipping and handling, and it's the um, it's the podcast logo on the front. Um, you can email us at Laura of the South at gmail.com. Um, write a review, maybe. Um, those go a long way to getting the podcast out there. Um, give us five stars and a few kind words, and I'll read it out loud on the next podcast. And with that, we'll talk to y'all later on Laura the South.
1: Stay tuned for a preview of our latest Patreon episode.
0: What is the only mammal that can change its eye color based on the season?
1: Mammal. Ooh. a
0: rabbit a bison a narwhal or a reindeer
1: a reindeer
0: yay you did very well that
1: was a good that was a good guess too because I was like what episodes could we have done that would have had <laughs> I think that
0: may have been the Yule lad one yeah, probably or it was at least a Christmas one but good job <sighs> you almost made Professor Mike <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: almost. <laughs> By the way, Dr. Dre did get an honorary doctorate. I told
0: you. It it was in like 2014
1: or something like that. He had to have.
0: No way that man could be getting up there this old now and not be an actual honorary Dr. Dre. Right. (laughs) (laughs) That would not be right, y'all.
1: If you loved what you heard, check out the Patreon page for exclusive content by searching for The Lore of the South on Patreon.com.